Um, but this summer, our staff got away and asked ourselves six questions. And these six questions um, were very important to give our organization, the church, clarity. And we wanted to say, we want, we want as much clarity as we can moving forward in this process of what it is we're going to do in church and what it is that we're going to, where we're going to move as an organization. So the reason why I'm glad you're here today is so that we could tell, we begin this series called The Unavoidable Kingdom. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how we want to see the kingdom of God come in this church. And uh, really in the whole world, we want to see the kingdom of God come. We don't want to limit it to this fellowship of believers. Um, in fact, I was with a, I was with a um, Filipino church yesterday. Um, we, we somehow forgot to announce, and there was a lot of other things going on, but we have uh, started a new, uh, we've, a new fellowship has started to attend here on Saturdays, and they're starting to use our fellowship hall. And um, they're a Filipino congregation, and we're very similar in beliefs, so Wesleyan Arminian theology. And uh, so I went to go meet with them yesterday, and I said, you know, we have an English church that meets here. We have a Spanish church that meets here. We have an Indonesian church that meets here. And now we have a Filipino church that meets here. How many churches does that make? Guess how many churches is that? Amen. And, and you just ruined my joke because that's what I told they, they all said four. And I said, no, it's one. And they went, oh, you got me. And, but thanks, Earl. I have to remember not to have Earl around if, uh, if I ever do that again. But... <laughs> But the reality is, it is one church. And, and literally, that's what we're going to be talking about the, the rest of this month. It is one church. It's four different expressions of that, but it's one church. And we want to see uh, God move in this way uh, th- to create more of these types of opportunities. And so one of the things we want to tell you is simply some ideas that we came up with that are, that are very scriptural. Because let me remind you, one of the things that I've said is, The church doesn't have a mission. God has a mission for the church. And we want to lead into that mission. A lot of times, um, I'm a really big fan of a guy named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And one of the things he says, and and I'm really glad that I look back on our vision. I'm like, okay, we're good here. But one of the things he says in his book, Life Together, is that, that God does not really appreciate the visionary. Because he tends to come to the church with his own ideas in mind. But what God, appreciate, or what God appreciates in us is coming to the church with Scripture in mind and the scriptural mission of the church in mind. And Bonhoeffer flushed this idea of the church out partly because he was dealing with the Nazification of the church. There was a whole Nazi theology that was brought out and handed down to the Lutheran church. And Bonhoeffer was part of the confessing church, and which was really living a scriptural life, but in opposition to the Nazi theology. And so that's why one of the reasons why he made that statement is that those visions for the church are man's vision for the church. But what God really appreciates is God's vision of the church because God created us for a purpose. And so we asked ourselves, okay, if God has a vision for us, if God wants us to do something, what does that look like and what is it we're going to do? And today is sort of where we lay out the theological foundation for it. You're kind of a group. When I say theological foundation, you guys go, oh, okay, I I get that. You know, the the people that um, come next week, I'd have to explain that to them. So it's really good that you guys are here. You guys are the the rock-solid foundational core. So it's great that you're here. I don't mean to insult anybody else because there's actually quite a few uh, really core people that aren't here this week. 
Um, my point is that uh, God has a vision for us. God has a mission for each one of us. God has a mission for this church. God has a mission for what he wants to do in this world. And the mission is you. The mission is you. You are the mission. So we came up with a few statements of how do we express this? And what does that look like? And what does that mean? So the first statement we've been toying around with and we've been playing with for the last year. And that is to know God and to make him known. We've talked about this on our board. I've gone to every single small group and we've talked about this. I've even gone to our youth ministry and our children's ministry. And we've talked about this. And everybody seems to really like that statement. To know God and to make him known. And we thought, this is a great statement. In fact, it's a great thing to put on uh, postcards. It's a great thing to put on bulletins. It's a great thing to put on that stuff. But one of the things we said is, although it's great, our staff kind of came back and said, it doesn't challenge us. It doesn't really push us forward. And although we like that, and we're going to continue on with that statement in a sense of it's a great marketing thing, one of the statements that we kind of came up with was this really lofty statement that, that is so challenging, we have no idea how we're even going to do it yet, but only to lean on God and to say, okay, God. And what we've decided to do is say, this is going to be a statement that's going to be for the leadership of the church. And if you're a Christian, the Bible says you're in leadership, <laughs> by the way. There's leadership uh, standards that we have here at this church and that the Bible has. But the Bible says that every single believer is a priest, the priesthood of all believers. Every single believer is called to carry God's word forward. And so we want to train people up in leadership and all that. But one of the things that we came up with was to make the kingdom of God unavoidable in the world. In our own lives, to make the kingdom of God completely unavoidable. That is a lofty, lofty statement. We don't know how we're going to do it. We have some sense and some idea of how we're going to do it. So one of the things that we did, and I want to make this real clear, to make the kingdom of God unavoidable in the world, we want that to be for like leadership and staff. And we want to explain that to you that is is that way. That's for leadership and staff. And for for marketing purposes, we're going to say to know God and to make him known. So to know God and to make him known. But among the leadership, when we sit down every single staff meeting, the first question is going to be, how do we make the kingdom of God unavoidable this week? How did we see the kingdom of God come in people's lives? How did we see God move in people's lives, in youth ministry, in children's ministry, in adult ministry? How did we see God's kingdom break through the surface and do incredible things? How did we see that? We're going to see it a little bit next week when we do baptisms and that sort of thing. But the, but the idea is, as a staff, we always want to be motivated to see God's kingdom break forth in this world and to continue to push that forward and to continue to drive that because we feel like that's what God is leading us to do. And, and I'll tell you why, because we're going to go through the whole scriptural thing about why. But a few things that we said as a church staff that we want to always make sure that this church has distinctives is meaningful worship opportunities. We always want to have meaningful worship opportunities, whether it's Wednesday or Sunday, and we'd love to add more meaningful worship opportunities. Right now, we've got a few. We've got age-appropriate children and youth worship opportunities. Uh, We have uh, adult worship opportunities. But we'd like to continue to have more meaningful worship opportunities because the worship of God is really one of 
per, in, on an interpersonal level, that's one of your uh, chief things that we ought to be doing is worshiping the Lord. Distinctive biblical education. Just about, um, I, just, I love this quote, and I'll just tell you this quote. The Bible contains a body of knowledge without which human beings cannot survive. Its reliability fixes the boundaries of everything God will ever say to humankind. This is a quote by Dallas Willard. That the Bible contains everything that we need for salvation. The Bible contains everything that we need for life. And so we want to continue to teach that, but really in really distinctive ways that encourage spiritual formation. There's teaching the Bible, which is good to understand what happened. And then there's spiritual formation, which is taking the teaching in the Bible and having it so form us in our own lives that we begin to change our, our daily practices as a result. And so one of the things that we have desired to do is to see the teaching of the Bible move into our own lives in such a way that our spirit is transformed by God and that our lives change as a result. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and then the third thing that we want to say that we're in, intentionally doing is intentional discipleship. So we have distinctive biblical education, and that's where we learn what happened in the Bible, and the discipleship really is putting it into practice in our daily life. Now, one of the things that the church has been lacking over the years, not just this church, but this is really the American church. Think of a triangle, where the top of the triangle is information. So this is what we tell you the Bible says. This is what you learn the Bible says through your classes. This is maybe what you teach the Bible says. Um, um, the next is imitation. So on this level of the triangle. Imitation is um, Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So in other words, many of us have mentors or many of us have people that we've looked up to in our lives. And we said, what would you do in this situation? Just this week, um, when this funeral came up, the opportunity to do this funeral, it is such a devastating thing in this family's life that my wife and I both said, we're like, who would, who would you call to ask how to do the funeral? The one person we could think of is actually hanging out with Jesus right now, um, and that was Gordon. <laughs> you know, he was a mentor in my life that I would, if he said, I would do this, guess what I would do? Exactly what he said. <laughs> Because he knew how to handle those types of situations, those types of funerals. But we need to all have people in our lives that disciple us. That are following Jesus so closely that when they do something, we go, that's how you handle that situation in life. Has anybody ever had that kind of person in their life? See, we need to have more of those intentional relationships in our church to help us understand. See, part of the problem with the church is we say, here's information. We skip the whole, here's how you live part, the imitation. That actually means getting closer together and living life together. And then we say, go innovate. And every Sunday, there's a part of the message where I end and say, maybe you need to put this practice into your life. Or maybe you need to do this. And sometimes it's really hard to do this without being shown how to do it. Now, I don't know much about electrical work, but I'm pretty sure Dennis wouldn't take me on the job and say, would you fix that transformer up there? I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, unless he wanted to see the hair come out, you know, and, and a human body, you know, get one of those things. But the idea is we have apprenticeships in all other trades in life. Why don't we ever have that 
in the church. And I think we need to do that a little bit more, more intentional discipleship. So those are some paths to seeing God's kingdom break forth in our lives in powerful ways. And so we started talking about this in our retreat. And we, it's sort of, for me, it's kind of based on this verse. And uh, Luke 17, we're going to uh, jump into that here. But in the next few weeks, we're going to ask the question, how do we make God's kingdom unavoidable? How do I make God's kingdom unavoidable in my life? Wouldn't that be awesome if everywhere I went, each person I had a conversation with, people went, wow, that person loves so much that, that I, I just want to know what they're doing. Um, I just want to do what they're doing. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus was asked by one of the Pharisees um, a question about the kingdom of God. And he says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Another way to translate that is the kingdom of God is, is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. And we think, how is this? How do, I don't understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule. God being in charge. God acting is in you. So what does it mean that God places his kingdom within his people for his purposes? What does that mean? That means that we are part of God's mission on this world. So if the kingdom of God is within us, like Jesus says it is, and if God wants to place his mission and his presence within us, what do you think is the greatest threat to God's kingdom? Us, right? If God says um, the kingdom of God is within you, the kingdom of God is in your midst, I'm making it available to you, then wouldn't wouldn't it follow to say, that the greatest threat to God's kingdom is actually us. So many times we submit to ourselves. So many times we orient our entire lives around what we want and what is good and useful for us, rather than what is good and useful for God. Don't we? We tend to do this. And, and so sometimes the biggest threat of the kingdom of God is us. And like I said before, and I'll say it again, God, um, or the church doesn't have a mission. God has a mission for the church. One of the um, things I wanted to talk about and, and really begin our discussion of this is what kind of the, we believe the Bible says that mission is to be. And it's super important. I'm going to say it over and over and over and over. The, and and this, is, this is simply it. The creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself included at the center as its most glorious inhabitant. The, God, the, the, the idea is that's the chief end of all of history. That's why we all exist. Is this glorious community of people who love God that's inclusive, that wraps their arms around people and welcomes them in, that includes God and is its most glorious inhabitant. And when the Bible says that he will form a new heaven and a new earth, and when we're with God in heaven, that's what's happening, is community is being built. And so therefore, we don't have multiple churches around here. That's not another church that's next door. That's another fellowship. We don't have other churches that are around. We have, 
one church in this world that is led by God, and we're simply a part of that. And we ask God to dwell in our midst. So that's sort of the idea. Theologians agree on this point that the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself included at the center as his most glorious inhabitant. So God's kingdom can come in the individual person because the kingdom is in within your midst, within you. But God's kingdom also comes in community. We need each other to show each other how to live. We need each other for sanctification. I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks. We need each other to learn how to follow God. It's really quite amazing. And so one of the things that we want to do is talk about how as a church and how individually God's kingdom can come in our lives. So I want to begin by taking a look um, through some different communities in the Bible. And I want to take a look at just sort of the entire breadth of Scripture. And every now and then I love to do these messages where we look at all of the Scripture. And I'm going to go through it pretty quick. So um, if you want to just jot the notes down and, and take a look at it later, it'll be up on the screen as well. So the first community, let's, let's look at this. Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 through 5. And I, one of the things, I want to show you how this idea permeates all of Scripture. So before we get into this and before we start reading, one of the purposes of the book of Revelation is to reveal the truth about the Roman Empire to the Roman Christians. Because the Roman Christians were really engaging in emperor worship. Now, a lot of times we go and eat a hamburger, and it's not a big deal, right? Right? I, you eat a hamburger, and it's not a big deal. So in the Roman Empire, if you went to go buy a piece of meat, what you didn't really realize you were doing was buying a piece of meat that was sacrificed to an idol that really meant a whole bunch of other things. It had this load attached to it. So these Christians were saying, how do we even eat in the empire? How do we do business in the empire? How do we live in the empire? And this is sort of what, um, what uh, John, the revealer, said to the church. And we have to keep in mind that when John spoke to the church in Revelation, he wrote um, down on a papyrus script and had to hand it to a censor. And the censor, the Roman censor, would sit there and read it. And a lot of times he thought, well, this guy is just crazy. Um, this guy's clearly gone insane, so he sent it forward. But John actually wrote in this kind of biblical code, not like the stuff they show on the History Channel that's just a bunch of wacky biblical stuff, but, the, but he wrote um, in a lot of symbolism to help the Christians at the time understand. So he says, With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The king of the earth committed adultery. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up in heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. What I want to really focus in on is this verse where John says to the church, come out of her, come out of her, great Babylon. And what he's referring to, and the, the words that he actually uses, um, are, are quite explicit. He uses coitus interruptus in the Greek, which is the interruption of a sexual act. 
And so what he's saying to the church is you are engaging with this empire in such a way that you're allowing it to completely change who you are. You're allowing it to, to completely um, shape what the church looks like. You're, you're, you're engaging with the empire in such a way that the church doesn't look like Jesus anymore. And so um, John used this extremely strong language to the church. And when he said, stop having sex with the empire. In other words, you have joined together. You're sharing in her diseases, a reference to the diseases that you might sometimes get at that day. Uh, syphilis was very common, by the way. So this is an extremely graphic thing that John wrote in the Bible. We don't tend to see it because we don't really read the Bible in Greek too often. But he's saying the church needs to end the steamy love affair that it has with Rome. It's got to end. Because it's changing the church and the mission is being thrown away. There's this certain allure to the empire. Especially in the times right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Daily success in life was tied to the empire. Was tied to the country. Now there wasn't countries like we think of countries. Um, countries like we think of countries today didn't come about till 1648. So if you didn't get anything out of today's message, at least you learned something. Treaty of Westphalia, Germany, end of the 30-year war, 1648. That's where we got national sovereignty. The one big thing I got out of my political science degree, right? that I could recite that off of the top of my head. So countries were not like what we think of today. They were large collections, and the only way to stay in power was through death and killing and, and exploiting the people and, and things like that. There wasn't this idea that, oh, this country um, can exist on its own, and that's fine with us. There wasn't that idea like there is now with democracy. That idea was completely gone. It never really existed. And so um, the idea was that you really needed to share in what the empire gave you for daily success in life. Um, let's see here. So whether or not you provided for your family was tied to whether or not you worshipped the gods of the empire, whether or not you traded with the trade guilds of the empire, and whether or not you ate the food that was sacrificed to idols. Sometimes you didn't understand what you were doing. But because God's kingdom comes both in our lives individually and corporately, God wants a people that are set apart for himself. And so this is what he was saying. When he was looking at this church, he was saying, you are no longer set apart. You now are, are just look like everybody else. And if God were to look at us today, would he say that? Would he say, oh, you just look like everybody else? Or would he say that you're completely set apart? And remember like what I said, the creation... God, what God wants in our world is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself included as his most glorious inhabitant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We see the genesis of this idea. We see the beginning of this idea. God meets Abraham under the tamarisk tree, and he begins to talk to him. Before this, there was just Adam and Eve, and there was this collection of people. There was Noah, and, and there was you know, all these little things happening, but, but God really wanted to create a new community. He wanted to restore what happened in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 12, he begins that work with a guy named Abraham. And he says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who, who I curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of what God's kingdom on earth is going to be. People that are going to be a blessing or an all-inclusive, all-loving community with God at the center. A people group that are going to be a blessing. Eventually, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And he gets his father's blessing. And then he has 12 kids that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then one of those kids named Joseph gets sent as a slave to Egypt. For 435 years, all of God's people go down to Egypt because of a famine. And this is a time where God's people learned how to worship Egyptian gods and learn how to live in an Egyptian system. And God began to lead them out of that system with the Exodus. Right? We all know there's a big book in the Bible. Moses sent, is sent by God to pull his people out. And on the way out, there's a guy named Balaam. And you guys might remember this old Bible story where Balaam is riding his donkey. Remember? And his donkey talks to him. Does anybody remember that story? Okay. Was, donkey, he's riding his donkey and he's going to Moab because the king of Moab wants his advice on what to do with these Hebrew people that are walking through his desert. He wants to know, do I kill these people? What do I do with them? And Balaam has these different oracles. And one of the oracles he has, he says, from the rocky peaks I see them. This is Numbers 23, 9. From the heights I view them, I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. From the very beginning, God understood that his people could not be tied to a certain political empire. It's, I mean, I was having a conversation with a, with a person this week. And living in, in relationship with Jesus is a strange thing because we happen to live in a country that's pretty darn good. <laughs> tell you what, I've seen some other countries, I've been to some other countries, and I can tell you what, we live in a country that's pretty darn good. But we're not called by any means to worship our country or to worship. No one calls us to worship our, our presidents or our leaders. They're simply our elected leaders who do our will, apparently. They definitely don't do yours, huh, Earl? I'm kidding. Um, but God says, I see this collection of people that's not at all like any of the other nations. That's not at all like any of the other empires of this world. They're different. Because the nations and the empires of the world do their will through killing, through murder, through exploiting, and through taking things. And I, I see my people as doing something a little bit different with not stealing, with honoring their father and mother. I see this group of people that, that they don't commit adultery. I see this group of people and they do something a little bit different. And so God gave the Ten Commandments a new way to live in the desert that's apart from the great empire of Egypt. It's been said that you could take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. And that was the problem with God's people. And a lot of times, that's the problem with us. So God wants to create this community. All along the way, God wants to create this community. And it's not like any of the other nations. God wants to create something totally different. And, if, and over time, God leads his people into Canaan, into the promised land. And um, they take Jericho. And they begin to live there. 
And they begin to honor God and do quite well. And God sets up this system of elders and judges. And these elders and judges help the people through disputes. They help them decide and decipher what is good and what God wants for them. And all of a sudden, this happened. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his, his sons as, Israelite, as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the second was Abijah. And they, they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. Now I've made this point in our church before and I thought, do I make this point again? Yeah, the thing is, this point you always have to make over and over and over again. Give us a king just like everybody else, is what they told God. And this actually grieved Samuel. He was so upset by this. And, and God was upset by this. And he, and he responded, but when, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people that are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are doing this to you now. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king who will reign over them uh, will claim his rights. It's interesting that God gives us what we want, even if it's the wrong thing for us sometimes. God gave his people exactly what they wanted, knowing full well it was the wrong thing for them. But God is so loving that he simply gives us what we want. And I like that the people even said, give us, a, give us a king just like the other nations. In other words, God, we don't even want to rely on you for our protection anymore. We want to live the way we want to live and not worry about invasion. A king will give us an army. A king will, will protect us. A king will make sure that we have enough to eat. And they had this little problem with the Midianites and, and the Amorites and the other clans and the Philistines, other troops and, and, and regiments that were around their area that would constantly devastate them when they were dishonoring God. So what these people are saying is, God, we want to continue to dishonor you, but we want to be protected while we do it. They rejected God as king of their lives and over the nations. God had this people that he wanted to bless to be a blessing, but they continually rejected him. All the way up until the time of Jesus' coming. And so now when we see that Jesus begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. is actually a really big deal because this is the kingdom that we've been talking about for years this is the kingdom that, that God had been setting up ever since Abraham. This is the community of people that God was setting up for thousands and thousands of years. And Jesus finally comes proclaiming, this kingdom is near, this kingdom is here. This announcement is so huge because Jesus is essentially saying, I am going to create an all-inclusive community of loving people with God himself included at the center of as its most glorious inhabitant. That's what God essentially is saying to his people. That we're going to create a new community. Anyways, all throughout Jesus' life, all throughout Jesus' life, 
um, he was not necessarily seen as the king. Even when he went to his death and he went to be put on trial, um, there was an interesting system where the, the Romans were the only ones who could actually um, uh, execute somebody. And the Jews didn't have that power uh, because of the Roman system at the time and the, and the rules of law. And so they brought them to the Romans and, and Pontius Pilate was there. And just as John chapter 19, verses 13 through six, 16. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, in which in Aramaic is Gabbatia. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. What Jesus came to do is to restore himself as the rightful king of our lives and of our community. So that God would actually reign in our lives and take control in our lives. So that when we listen to God, God is actually reigning and taking control. So many times, God, we see God, um, another king of our lives. So many times, money becomes the king of our lives. So many times, I become the king of my own life. Power becomes the king of my own life life. Remember we said, what is the greatest threat to God's kingdom? If God's kingdom is in you, then the greatest threat to God's kingdom is you, is me, personally. Fully submitting to myself rather than fully submitting to Jesus. And we've begun in a mode of rejecting God for thousands of years. And we reject him whenever the allure, the allure of the empire becomes greater than the desire to do God's will in our own life. Sometimes the allure is fashion, being sexy. I, I have that problem. I try not to be... Thanks, Tina, for keeping me humble. I try not to be, but it's, it's hard. Oh, Desiree was standing in the back. I, I was get, looking for a laugh from my wife, but she must have just walked out. Um, <laughs> But the, the temptation is to live in full submission to ourselves rather than to Jesus. To say, God, I'm the king of my own life. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to be in charge. I'm not going to let you do anything. So what does it look like to make the kingdom of God completely unavoidable in your life? To make it more prominent than the country that you live in, although we happen to live in a pretty great country more prominent than the political party that you belong to, more prominent than any um, of the clothes you wear or the things who you are, more, how do we make God's kingdom more prominent in our lives than anything else about our lives? How are you known by other people? Do other people know you as, oh, the person that uh, belongs to this group or the person that does this in the community? Or do people know you as a strong follower of Jesus? That basically comes out of your pores because of the way you follow him. How are you known? How do people see you in this world? What does a person look like who has made the kingdom of God unavoidable in their lives? 
Usually these people have been confronted by a choice. The allure that the empire has to give, wealth, fame, notoriety, being somebody, having something, or being completely insignificant for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Being completely insignificant to the world. It has been said, the guy named um, Henry Nowen said, when you are the least significant is when God can be the most significant in your life. When you are the least significant is when God can be the most significant in your life. Maybe you're here today and you're simply proclaiming that something else is king. Something, with the way you live, something else rules you. And you simply need to say, God, you are my king. That's it. You're my king. I will be ruled by you all the days of my life. Maybe the first step in living towards the, living in the unavoidable kingdom is the confession that God is king. Let's pray. Father, um, this morning we're confronted with the reality that we have so many other things that rule our lives other than you. Father, we are confronted with the um, reality that uh, we live for ourselves a lot of times more than we live for you. Father, help us to be the kind of people that naturally, out of the outflow of our lives, live for you. Help us to be the type of people that when we see this behavior in our lives that declares that we are our own kings, Help us to be the type of people that take every thought captive and make it obedient to you. Father, we pray that you would lead us and be the king of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And, uh,